I want you to picture how far would you travel on Christmas to be with somebody that you want to be with? How far would you go? Maybe, maybe that's the wrong question. Maybe it's not how far you would go, but how long you would be willing to travel to get there. Right? Because I could say, hey, we could go across the world in 24 hours, and that would be quite a trip. If we said we're going to Australia, we said we're going to New Zealand, or we said we're going to somewhere in Asia, it's like that's a lot of plane flights. We've got to stop at different places. It's going to take a long time to get there. But ultimately, you can get anywhere in this world in less than 24 hours, just about. It's not how it was in the ancient world, and you know that the story of Christmas involves a lot of different people traveling, and perhaps the most famous travel is when Joseph and Mary left their home in Nazareth and went all the way down to Bethlehem, which if you've been in church, maybe people have tried to describe it to you. This is like a three-day journey. It's 80 miles, but this was taking a long time by foot and on a camel or however they got there, but there's actually one journey that's a Christmas journey that was a much longer journey. We're not actually sure quite how far it was. It was when this group of people, we call them the wise men or the magi, traveled from a different empire in the east for months just to catch a glimpse of Jesus. And this took such a long time that potentially by the time they showed up to Jesus, we don't have an infant anymore. We have a toddler Jesus. This story is one that you might be familiar with, but I want you to look at it in the pages of Scripture. So grab a Bible and let's look at Matthew chapter 2 together. And as you turn there, I want you just to think, how far would you go to see somebody at Christmas time? It's funny, I know it's a Christmas sermon, but really, this did not happen at Christmas time, unless it was exactly a year later. But we think this could have happened up to two years after Jesus was born because of all the time it would take to travel. It says in um, Matthew chapter 2 that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, which is what was promised. We already heard that, we know about that. He was born in Bethlehem. And it says in verse number one, in the days of Herod, when he was king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Okay? They are kind of our main characters. Let's just establish our characters. We have Jesus so far. He's said to be born. He's a baby. We've got Herod, the king, and we also have these wise men. How many were there? What were these people? Basically, the word wise men is not a good like, translation. That's just what we call them. The better translation is the word magi. If you ever heard that word, magi, we get the word magic from that word. And basically, there was a group of people in a foreign country, and there was a lot of different people like this, that were the royal elite people that kind of ran the society. So you've got kings and monarchs, but then just in about every society, you always have a leader and a figurehead, but then you've got this group of people that are highly educated, highly intelligent, and very, very rich. That was the magi. And we see them actually in the Bible, not in the beginning in Matthew chapter 2. The first time we see the Magi, it's actually in Daniel. The reason we read from Daniel this morning is because Daniel was actually one of these Magi. When he was in Babylon, it says in Jan Daniel chapter 2 that he actually was put in charge of all the other Magi. So that was in Babylon, which turned into Persia and all these other empires. But we think this structure kind of existed all the way till the time of Jesus, that you got these empires with an emperor, but you've got these very important elite people. What scholars think about these magi were, they were the most highly educated. Sometimes they were called kingmakers because they would choose emperors or kings from within their own class. 
Like, whoever the top of the class of the Magi is, they should be the next ruler. So these Magi, when they would go somewhere, one of their jobs was to say, that guy right there is the king. And when you got a lot of Magi coming together, recognizing that someone was king, that was a very, very big deal. I, I don't know how to compare it to America. It's like, you know, the Senate, right, even though they're elected. But it'd be like the very, very important people that have some jobs appointing other people. That's who these guys were, and they came to King Herod. Now, some things you should know about King Herod. He was a very jealous man. If you've heard anything about Herod, one of the most famous things he does is later in this chapter, he is so afraid of anyone else taking over that he was willing to kill dozens and dozens of baby boys in his kingdom just to make sure that anyone who was born called the king of the Jews was taken out. That's how evil this guy was. History also tells us that he killed his first wife. He killed two of his sons when he was afraid that they were going to try to take power, which really there was no evidence that they were going to try to take power, but he was so paranoid. Right? You can imagine this. You've got this group of royal elites, the most highly educated that come from the east, and then you've got this evil tyrant, and they meet, and they come in Jerusalem, and look at what the wise men say in verse number two, saying, this is what they came to Herod and said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So what they're asking for is, where is the king? Where is he? Now, if you were in Jerusalem at that time, and someone said, where is the king, king of the Jews, who would you be pointing to? You'd be pointing to King Herod. In fact, non-Christian and extra-biblical sources call Herod king of the Jews. Like, he assumed that title to himself. He was not even a Jewish guy. He was only half Jewish. He came from the Edomites, which if you know your Old Testament, they come from Esau, not Jacob. So this is a foreign king that became powerful because he made a deal with the Romans. So remember, the Romans were in charge, and he comes along and says, I want to be the king of the Jews. Hey, can you let me be king of the Jews? I'll rule for you for Rome. I'll be like a governor, right? But I can just call myself king of the Jews. And Caesar Augustus was the one who actually said, yeah, you can do that. So in 37 BC, which is like 30 years earlier, Herod becomes king. But not king, king. He's not a monarch. He's really just a governor, but he calls himself king of the Jews. And the wise men come along and say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? The irony in this passage is Herod was not born king of the Jews. Herod was not technically king of the Jews. He was not from the line of David. So his whole life, you could imagine, there is an insecurity in this evil tyrant because he knows he's faking it, right? Faking it till he made it. And he basically made it, but anytime someone threatened his rule, he went after him. And that's what he does here. He says, next, the wise men say, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So here's another thing that you can see in this text, right? You find out about the wise men, Herod, and then there's a star. You've heard that Christmas story, that there's a star over Bethlehem, and that's true. But if you're just going to study this passage, there's questions, right? Like, what, what kind of a star are we talking about? It's like a star, like the sun is a star. You know how there's all those stars that you can see with the telescope. Um, how could a star like that have led these magi who studied the stars, how could it have led them to Bethlehem? Well, I don't know if this is a controversial take, but I don't think it was a star, I don't think it was a comet. I don't think it was a supernova. Uh, the easiest and most simplest explanation is God gave a supernatural light in the sky, and it led these people. And the interesting thing is nobody from Jerusalem notices the star. So the idea is perhaps you've got this group 
of astrologers, people who study the stars, wherever they are, in Persia or Babylon or wherever, and God puts a light in the sky. I'm like, that's unique. What's that? And they go follow. And what we see is this star is actually going to move around, which is why I don't think it's just like a, a supernova or a comet. It moves around so much so where it, it comes to rest over the place where Jesus was, which the idea there is it comes over the house where Jesus was. So I don't think we're talking about a comet that's like, oh, it's comet over there. We should just go over there. I think this was some kind of supernatural light that God put in the sky, very similar, by the way, to the light that he led the Israelites in the book of Exodus. He often leads people with a light in the sky, and that's what happens. And they come to worship him. Now, verse 3, look at this. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. The word troubled is not even a good word here. It should be terrified. The word really means like he was shaking in his boots. This guy was so nervous, freaked out because... They heard that someone was born king of the Jews. He was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, which if you read the Gospel of Matthew, Jerusalem, they're kind of the bad guys, right? They're the people who don't embrace the Messiah. So we even see in a literary function here, Matthew is setting us up to show that Jerusalem was not going to receive Jesus because they're on Herod's side here. Now, that could have been just out of fear, right? If you've got a really evil tyrant king, if he's troubled, you're troubled. If I mean, he killed his wife, if he killed his father-in-law at one point, if he killed two of his kids, like you don't want to get in this guy's way. So it makes sense that Jerusalem was scared. goes on in verse 4. He assembled the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So Herod is maybe not like a, a Bible nerd, but he knows enough about Jewish history to know I know the Old Testament says something about a king that is to be born. And I know the people I should ask. I should ask the chief priests and the, the scribes. Interesting. Uh, the chief priests were Sadducees. The scribes were Pharisees. Those two groups did not like each other. So this is a sharp, wise move of a king to ask two people that often disagree with each other. And they both come back with the same answer. That's how you know this is a pretty legit piece of information. They both say, here in verse number five, they told him, well, in Bethlehem. Of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So what we see here is the wise men ask Herod. Herod asks the chief priests, the religious people, right? And they say, We've got an answer for you. He must be in Bethlehem. Now the geography is important here. It says these kings are from the east. It says in Jerusalem, we have to go to Bethlehem. So if you were going to take a road trip here from the east, you never would go through on the, from east to west. You don't, I don't know if this is the right way for you. Yeah, yeah this, is, this is the right way for you. I'll do it for, from your perspective, okay? If the east is over here, right, and Judea is over here, you could not go through this way because that's a big desert, right? So you'd have to go around up top and then go north to south, right? You guys know your geography because, you know, we got people on team north and south and east and west, right? So you know what we're talking about here. So they were coming from the north down south through Jerusalem, okay? There's a city that's six miles to the south of Jerusalem, and that's the city of Bethlehem. So as this star guided them along, where are they going to stop? Well, they're obviously going to stop in Jerusalem because the star is guiding them through Jerusalem. And I want you to imagine, if you are the wise men, the kingmakers that come from a palace and you eat the best food and you were trained in the best schools, you are going to go to the center of power. And that's Jerusalem. 
and they show up and nobody knows what they're talking about. That's kind of surprising. The story should read that way to you. Why did nobody in Jerusalem know that this happened? This should be old news to them. I mean, the wise men are like, hey, where's the king? Where's, where's the newborn king? I'm like, what are you talking about? We, we don't know what you're talking about. Oh, don't tell Herod. And he does. Verse 7 says, And Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. Right? Because Herod's thinking, okay, if there's some star that's in the sky that you guys have been following, when did that show up? And we think, based on what was going to happen later, that they tell Herod, yeah, it's been there for like a year or more, up to two years. Because what Herod is going to do is he's going to make sure every child, every boy under two years old is killed just in case. And it says in the text that he did that based on the time that the Magi told him. So this could have been two years later. And he says in verse 8, and, they sent, and he, Herod, sent them to Bethlehem. So he says, go down south. Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I, may, I too may come and worship him. Right? So that was a lie, as you could probably imagine. This guy wants to get rid of him, and we're going to see that later. He, how he tries to kill this newborn king of the Jews. But just notice, he does this secretly. Right? So he summons the wise men secretly, and he sends them out, perhaps by night. Verse number 9. Check this out. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So star shows up again. We think that perhaps the star may have gone away. Went to Jerusalem, went away. They didn't see the star anymore. And they thought maybe this is where we're supposed to be. But as they journeyed, they see that light in the sky again. And where does the light go? It moves and it settles over the place, the house in particular, where Jesus was. Verse 10 says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, which seems like a throwaway line. Like, why would Matthew include that? Well, it's probably because in this time, they weren't sure they were going to see the light again. The light brought them to Jerusalem, and they're probably really disappointed because they're like, I, I thought everyone would be worshiping this guy, but where is he? Well, they got really excited because they saw the light again. Verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child, which was not an infant anymore, right? This baby is like Jordan's age or Eden's age, if you know my kids, or, or Micah's age. Or he, he's a toddler, right? He, I don't know if he can say words yet. He's got teeth in his mouth at this point, right? This is not like a little tiny infant anymore. And they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. They didn't worship Mary and Joseph, just Jesus. I just want you to imagine where they came from, right? These are royal people from a royal palace eating royal food with royal servants, right? Then where do they go? The most royal place in Israel, right? Where there's a royal king with royal servants and royal food, and they probably, you know, had really good food in between, all that stuff. They're royal, okay? And then where do they show up to? A little dinky house in a little village with a very unimpressive 16-year-old right? girl holding a baby there. Right? That's 
what they show up to. It's kind of like if you got a group of executives that are like CEOs and CFOs or whatever, and they're used to, they got their nice suits on and all that stuff, and then they're looking for somebody. They're looking for somebody. Imagine a group of guys with their suits on, right? Really nice suits, really nice jackets, really nice you know, leather shoes. They're so shiny that they, you, know, you can see your reflection in their shoes. Super nice, right? And then where do they go? The light guides them to the McDonald's, and there's a girl with a baby in a McDonald's booth, and they walk in there, and they fall down. They get all their, you know, nice pants. They don't care. They get them dirty, and they start worshiping the baby in the girl's arms. That's what it would have been like. That's the picture. That is what we're supposed to read as we read the Gospel of Matthew. That's Jesus. And look what they did. Then, opening their treasures. They didn't give these to Herod. I don't know how they, you know, got past customs with Herod and him not noticing these, but they opened their treasure because they probably had a lot of camels and a lot of stuff. And they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. It's interesting. All throughout this section, God is leading them. These are people who are, they're not Christians, right? They're not even Jewish. But they have some respect for the God who made the world. And the God who made the world was speaking to them in very small ways, like with a light. And then in a dream. And it's so ironic that in this story, you have the people who possess all the knowledge and the scripture, and they don't worship Jesus. In fact, they oppose Jesus. Oh, but then the people who barely have any information about him are seeking him and want to worship him. All of this story is important for us as Matthew sets up his gospel. Because you remember, we're studying the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the most important things we said at the beginning was Jesus spoke with authority. When he speaks, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking to your heart and your soul. And he like sees right through all the garbage. He sees right through all the excuses. And he knows the motive of your heart. And that's why when we read the Sermon on the Mount, it's like, whoa, he, he knows me. He understands. And you know, not everything I do is right. And there's this authority that he speaks with. Matthew introduces Jesus this way. That's why I like looking at it while we're studying the Sermon on the Mount, because this is the Jesus who speaks to us every time we open up the Sermon on the Mount. When he tells us to change, when he tells us to repent, when he tells us to trust him, this is the one. Magi came and worshiped him. Herod didn't. What can we learn from all this, right? We haven't given any points yet. I'm saving it all for this, because basically, from this story, we have different people with different responses to Jesus, right? Uh, the people who should have known seem to not know. The people who knew very little were seeking. The people that were going to lose something by a new king coming into town, they rejected Jesus. We got to learn that this king was not just king of the Jews, not just king back then, but if you know what the Bible says, this king, the one who was born, is king of the world and ultimately the rightful king of your life too. This king who was born has the right to tell you and me what is right and wrong. This king has the right to define goodness and sin and righteousness and lawlessness. This baby, this king, has authority over your life and my life. And wise people will come and worship him. And foolish, rebellious people will push him away. And like these religious leaders, people with a lot of head knowledge that never trust in Christ, well, they, because of their indifference and their apathy, they never even deal with Christ. 
First thing I want you to notice in the story, point number one, I want you to observe how any new king will expose and divide people. This is what happens, right? This is true in politics. This is true in religion. This is true in life, right? A new authority figure will come in and will divide people. It's going to expose people and say, where are you at? That's what they're going to do. Do I want to follow this new leader or do I not want to follow this new leader, right? Whether it's, it's for a presidential campaign, whether it's for any authority, whether it's a coach, whether it's a teacher, whatever, if you have any right to question authority, once you've got a new authority, the question mark is there, right? What do we do with this new person? And especially when what is claimed about this person is that they are your boss, you have a decision to make, right? Am I going to submit to this person's boss? Am I going to follow them? Or am I going to say, they're not the boss of me. We won't. We don't want you to be king over us. Yeah, the, the, the problem is even heightened when you realize all that Jesus claims to be. Right? People have noted this. Pastors and scholars have noticed that there's three groups of people here. Right? This is not my original thinking, but I want to share this with you. There's basically three responses to Jesus based on these three groups of people. The first is these eager wise men. Right? They come from the east. They want to humbly worship the king, even though they are the most royal. They are the smartest people. They're smarter than Mary. They're smarter than Joseph. They're smarter than Herod. They are the smartest. They are the elites from way out in the middle of nowhere. They got the nicest clothes. They've got the nicest cars. And they are the ones that bow down in humility to this little baby with an insignificant mother in a very insignificant place. They're willing to do that. Then you've got characters like Herod who are evil, who are paranoid, and who are power hungry. Because ultimately, Herod doesn't want anyone else to be king of the Jews. Because he established himself. He said, this is my life. I'm going to do life the way I want to do it. And in our response to Jesus, a lot of people are like that too. You got group number one that they want to seek Jesus. They're eager to have him be king. They're eager to submit to him. And then you've got people who know that if Jesus is king of your life, you got to stop a lot of the stuff you're doing. you got to change a lot of things about who you are. you got to realize that you're not king anymore, and I don't know if I want to do that. Right? Not only do I not know I want to do that, I know that I don't want to do that. And many of you are in that case too. Right? There are Christians in this room who want to seek Christ, that are trying to worship him and are doing that, and are his disciples. There are some of you, like Herod, that know you're not right with God, and it's like, yeah, and I don't want to be. I do not want him to be king. I want to be king. I'm the Lord of my life. I don't want Jesus coming in and messing up any of my plans. I don't want church people to come along and tell me that I'm wrong about anything. I don't want anybody in my life to use God's authority to say, this has got to change or this has got to adjust. We don't want it. We don't want that. People like Herod. And then you've got people like the religious leaders. Right? They're the ones that we don't hear much about, but it is so interesting. They're the ones that have the answers. They know where Jesus was going to be born. They know where the Christ was to be born. And guess what they never do? They never go. They don't even check it out. They don't go worship him. We don't see them showing up until Matthew 3 and 4 when they send Pharisees out to just check on Jesus and say, is this guy teaching the right thing? That's like 35 years later. Whole different, those aren't even the same people anymore. They don't seek Jesus. They're not ready to worship Jesus. They're apathetic. There's a third group, right? People who have the head knowledge. A lot of church kids are like this, right? You know the truth, but you don't want to respond to the truth. It's not like you've said, no, I hate Jesus. I'll never follow him. And it's not like you've said, I love Jesus. I want my life to be about him. It's just kind of in the middle with all the head knowledge, right? A lot of us in the room are like that too. 
A lot of people who grew up in church. A lot of people whose parents perhaps are Christians, but you're not really sure what you want to do. And you kind of have your life the way you want it, and you don't want Jesus to mess that up either. The religious leaders should have known better, but they didn't do anything about it. In the Gospel of John at the beginning, when John introduces Jesus, he says this. This is in John 1, 11. It says, Jesus came to his own, to his own people, but his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. So Gentiles, people outside of God's covenant. No promises made to them. But they come, they believe in Jesus, guess what? He says, you are as much a child of God as anybody else. That's why I think these magi, even though they didn't have a full, complete idea of who God was, I, I think you're going to be able to see these magi in heaven because they clearly demonstrate a willingness to, to submit to Jesus, right? You know you're not going to see there? You're not going to see Herod. You're not going to see these chief priests and Sadducees and scribes, these people that were so righteous, and they thought they were so righteous, but they didn't worship Jesus, and they wouldn't trust him. Isn't that amazing? Right? That, that should be kind of shocking. How it's weird that the Jews weren't all flocking to worship him. The, the phrase even, king of the Jews, you know that's never, ever uttered by an Israelite in all the Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that phrase, the king of the Jews, it's always a phrase uttered by Gentiles about Jesus. That's just interesting, right? That outsiders recognize who he is. I said he exposes and divides people. He exposes you, right? He shows where your heart is. He shows where the Magi's heart was, to seek God. Where Herod's heart was, to be Lord of his own life. And the religious leaders, to say, I I'm going to do whatever I want to do the way I want to do it, right? It exposes our hearts. But it also divides people. Those are our two words, right? Expose and divide. How does it divide people? Well, basically, you get broken up into two different groups. And everybody does. If Jesus is preached anywhere, now we have different groups of people. What have you done about Jesus? And that breaks you into groups. You've got some that we might call the disciples, the people who want to follow him. We've got the followers of Jesus. Right? Whether you've been a Christian for a long time or you're just seeking him now, right? We've got those people. And then we've got the people that say, like Herod, he will not be my king. Jesus said in Luke 12, he says, don't think that I've come to bring peace on earth. No, I tell you, but rather division. This is Jesus' words. This is Luke 12, 51, 52, 53. He says, from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, or two against three. They will be divided. Father against son, and son against father. Mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. That's not just talking about family problems. That's talking about if people respond to Jesus, there will be families that are torn apart. Perhaps yours is, right? Maybe one side of the family believes in Jesus, the other doesn't. Guess what? Family is getting torn apart. It might be father and son. It might be mother and daughter. It might be whatever, you know, relationship. When Jesus comes along, it gets divided. And that's what Jesus said. Even that division, right? The division that happens here on earth is just a little foretaste of the division in judgment, right? So here's the way I want you to think about it. Jesus comes along, Herod and wise men are on different pages, right? Jesus comes along and says, yeah, I'm putting people on two different pages. Like you're either going to respond and say, you're my king, or you're going to say, you're not my king. You're going to end up in one of those two areas, right? And then in the end, do you know how the gospel of Matthew presents judgment? It's very interesting. This is Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. Jesus says this, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, 
and all the angels with him. He will sit on his glorious throne, and before him will be gathered all the nations. And he, son of man, will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And he will place his sheep on his right, but his goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, the people that are, are with him, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared from you from the foundation of the world. And he goes on and says all these other things. It's very interesting. What does Jesus do? He divides and exposes people. He says, who are you going to follow? Who are you going to be? Right? And it's so appropriate for you as a high school student to think about this. Right? This is what the gospel does for high school students. It divides you. Right? That's why True North is not as united of a place as it could be. You could all be best friends, but the reality is some of you want to follow Christ and others of you don't. And then there's division. Right? Just like in every group, in every family that happens. Unless everyone decides we're going to follow Christ. There's division. And ultimately, that, that's, a, that's a foretaste of the division that happens in the end when Jesus says, these people are going to heaven and these people aren't going to heaven. Right? What is that based on? It's based on what you do about Jesus. Who is he? Is he your Lord? Are you trusting him as Savior? If not, well, then you're making the choice of which group that you're joining here. So important. Any new king does that, but Jesus does that especially because of his big claims. We talked about in the scripture reading, we read Daniel chapter 7. The reason we read that was because I want you to imagine these magi most likely had the writings of Daniel. Right? If Daniel was the chief magi for a very important time in their history, we, we believe that they must have had the book of Daniel. They, they've seen this text before. And there's a very important couple verses that are in that text that we read earlier. I'll read, read them again. This is Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I think this is in the background for these magi when they come. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven... There came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, so this, this son, this person, this son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. It's so interesting. Like the magi are just like getting ahead, right? Because their thought is, whatever this special king is going to be born, he's going to rule everybody. He will rule the whole world. So the best thing for me to do is to get rightly aligned with him now, is to serve him now. Because he'll rule everybody. He'll rule everything. You know that Jesus will rule everyone and everything one day, whether you want him to or not. And one way to define Christians is Christians or followers of Christ, they're the ones that say, Jesus is going to be my Lord right now. I'm just going to follow him today. I'm going to submit earlier. He says, in that passage, Daniel 7, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, languages, and nations should serve him. And his dominion, so his authority, is an everlasting dominion. It doesn't go away. It's not for a short period of time. It's not like a presidential term. It's not even like the length of time that a dictator rules a country until he's dead. This king will have an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. So the Magi say, I want to be rightly aligned with that king. They decided to follow him, and they decided to worship him. Right? Ultimately, that's the same decision that is brought before you. Are you going to decide to submit to Christ joyfully, or are you going to say, I I'm not going to do that? That's point number two. I want you, as a high school student, I want you to decide to joyfully and humbly 
Submit to King Jesus. That's what I want you to decide even now. Even if you think, I'm not a Christian yet, I don't know what to do, I just want you to make the decision this morning, I am going to be rightly aligned with Jesus, and I will take whatever steps I need to take to get there. I want to be on his team. I want to be on his side. That's the first step for many of us. The Magi know this. They don't know everything there is to know about Jesus, but that's what's amazing about the Magi. They have such little information, but yet they still seek. The Pharisees, they didn't decide to joyfully and humbly submit to King Jesus. And you might feel bad for the Pharisees, by the way. I think there's room for that. As you read the story, like, but King Herod is crazy. He's a tyrant. What if, what if Herod killed them? It's like, well, in hindsight, you see how silly that looks? I don't want to worship the king, the, the one who has ultimate dominion and all authority. I don't want to worship him because I'm afraid of King Herod. Right? It just sounds silly when it's put that way, right? It's like, well, there's a powerful king and then there's a less powerful king. Right? But I think our high school fear of man problem is even sillier. I don't want to worship Jesus. I don't want to be rightly aligned with the king of the universe because, you know, someone that doesn't even like me from fourth period might think I'm weird, right? Okay, does that sound silly? When, it, when you put it like that, it kind of sounds silly, right? But we have to decide, like, what, where are your allegiances going to be? And, and I, I love that you are in high school because you can make those decisions before you have made most of your other life decisions, right? In five years, if you and I have this conversation and you're still a person that refuses to submit to Christ, this is going to be harder for you to do in five years because you've made more decisions in life and you've been more like King Herod for five more years. And it's going to be harder for you to say, yeah, I want to follow Christ now. You're going to have to give up even more. But like, this is the trajectory that everything is pointing to. You cannot run from Jesus. I cannot run from Jesus. We can't run from God's word. It always proves true. You can go and live your life in opposition to it, but you're going to come right back, whether in repentance and faith or in judgment. That's how the world works. That's how it, it, it operates. The way Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, he says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, that's Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All of you will recognize that, right? All of you will. Um, and, and I want you to just recognize that now. Um, just, just see that, right? I know it's, there's a lot more to it. Like, oh, well, what, what do I have to repent of? What is my, but the first step is just say, Jesus is Lord. I'm going to follow him. He can set the terms, not me. Right? That's what it means to become a Christian. That's what it means to, even as a Christian, follow him. That's what we do every day. We say, okay, I haven't been living in conformity to what God wants. Okay, well, Jesus is Lord. So what does he want me to do? What does God's word have to say? That's a good description of how you grow in the Christian life. It's just being conformed to be more like Christ. Joyfully submit. Say whatever he wants. Right? Go back to our three characters, right? Um, with Herod, there are some people that instead of submitting to him, they see him as a rival authority and they fight. Um, they say, I don't want to do that. There are others like the chief priests and scribes who are indifferent, right? They know the truth and they think, well, because now I know the facts about it, I'm good. Right? It's like, no, now that you know the facts about it, if you don't respond, you're in even more trouble. Like there are people that don't know the facts, like all the Magi's friends who don't know anything about Jesus. 
you know, you could make an argument from, you know, in general, because they're sinners, they're in trouble. That's true. But the people like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, like the religious people who had the Bible, like they knew the facts and they were in trouble. That's why the scariest thing to be is a church kid who does not follow Christ. That's the scariest place to be because of the information. Then there's the Magi, right? They seek him. There are people right now in this room, maybe you're not a Christian yet, but, but you want your sins to be forgiven. You want to be rightly aligned with Jesus. Maybe you haven't started following him yet, but you're a person who seeks God. Right? That's, a, that's a work that God does in your life. Right? The scripture is very clear. No one seeks God on their own. If you're a person who's seeking God, I got really good news for you. That is a great thing. I think God is working in your life if you're seeking him, because you wouldn't be if he hadn't been seeking you first. That's good news. God's leading you, right? Maybe like the Magi. Now, you might not have a bright light in the sky that you're walking to, but he may be leading you through people in your life. He may be leading you through the Bible. He may be leading you through sermons, through church, through maybe even what your parents are saying. And it's like, I know the right path that I'm supposed to walk, and I know I should be, I'm being led there, but I'm not always making the decision to follow, that's where it's important for us to be like the Magi, humble, ready to go. And there's some of you that don't know hardly anything about Jesus. This is all brand new to you, but you still are seeking. That's good. It's exactly where the Magi were. They didn't know Jesus' name. They knew very little about him. They knew what Daniel wrote, and they had some idea that a star might lead someone to a king, and they, they followed. They left everything. I mean, what sacrifices did they make? Have you ever thought about that? The Magi, if they're so important and so royal, what projects did they leave behind? How many of their houses were being worked on and how much maintenance did they say, you know what, I'm going to give that to somebody else because I'm going to go. What families did they leave? What children were born of these magi that they didn't get to be there for because they said, we're going to go to the newborn king. More important than even my own kids. Put this in real life. These are real people with a real life with a lot of responsibility. They left a lot of things behind. They traveled for a long time. They did not get to sleep in their own bed, which was probably a really nice bed and a really nice palace. They slept in a tent, and they were open to exposure, and they went through the desert for a long time. They ate food that wasn't as good as what they could have eaten before. Why? Because they thought, there is a God who is leading me to find this king, and I want to submit to this king. The Magi made up their mind and said, we're going to do what God wants because we think that there's a king that's born that's true, which it is, some of us need that perspective too, like the Magi. I think we can learn something from them. Whether you're Christian or not, you can learn. If you're someone who seeks God, they took whatever they had, and they sacrificed a lot, and their top priority was, I am going to do what God wants me to do. I will leave behind whatever is in my life that is not going to help me seek God and seek to worship him right now. They used whatever they had. That's point number three. I want you to use whatever you have to honor King Jesus. Use whatever you have. They had gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They were rich people. This is probably a big sacrifice for them, but maybe it wasn't, right? Maybe this was from the royal treasury, whatever. I don't know. But either way, this is a big, expensive gift that they only gave to Jesus. Two things I think we can learn about the Magi here. They had an attitude of worship, right, that said there's no sacrifice that is going to be too big for this newborn king. Which, why would they think that? They don't know the baby. It's not like 
you know, they're going to a loved one. It's, that's not really the right way to think about it. It wasn't a loved one. This was like, I need to be rightly lying with this king. But no sacrifice was too big. Right? That was, that's the heart of worship. It's an attitude of worship. That I'll, I'll, I'll sacrifice my time. I'll sacrifice my money. I'll sacrifice my social status, whatever. No sacrifice is too big for Jesus. Right? That's the first attitude. The second attitude is the attitude of humility that they had. Right? One attitude says there's no sacrifice too big. That's kind of that attitude that helps us worship. But an attitude of humility says kind of the opposite. There's no task, there's no role that is too small, that's beneath me, right? That's another lesson we learned from the Magi. Remember, this is a bunch of guys in suits getting out of a limousine, walking into a McDonald's and worshiping a baby that's being held by a teenage mother in a booth at McDonald's. That's the picture. It's like you would freak out if you saw all these dudes show up. So much so. It's even more than that, right? You would never see so much wealth walk into the city. Their wealth exceeded that of Herod, exceeded that of even many of the Romans that were there, right? This would be foreign, exotic kind of stuff. You'd see jewelry on them that you've never seen before. It'd be like looking at aliens who walked in, like, what's your spaceship made out of, right? That's what it would have been like to these people when the Magi showed up. But they immediately bow down and worship, which that's a, you know, if you read about this, in the eastern countries, that was a very common thing. If you, you had a king, you would prostrate yourself, which means you would, like, lay down, like, on your, your, your hands and knees or maybe your forehead on the ground. You would completely bow down. That was, in their culture, the way that they would express reverence for someone or high respect for somebody, right? Uh, obviously, every culture is different. It's not even what you would have done in Israel. Israel, culture is a little bit different than that, but that's what these, these Eastern people did. But there was never a hesitation, right? What, if you saw, again, I just want you to picture that, the limousine of high-power CEOs walking out of their limousine, going to the McDonald's for that baby, to worship that baby. Wouldn't you expect they'd like, oh, is the floor mopped up? Oh, I'm wearing my nice clothes. Like, maybe we should go back. Are we sure this is the right thing? There's like no hesitation in the text. The idea is they saw the star, they were led to the place, and they worshiped. There was never a question of like, but that's beneath me, right? Sometimes we have a pride problem. This is more particular in older people. Hopefully um, you don't have this problem. A lot of older people have this problem. That they say, I would not follow Jesus because I would certainly not want to serve out of church. I wouldn't want to work with, with kids in a kids ministry. It's gross. It's grimy. That job is beneath me. I'm an important person, right? But some of us have that mentality in some things, right? I wouldn't talk to a freshman. I wouldn't help with anything with junior high. Those people are beneath me. I wouldn't help in that way. I wouldn't serve God in that way, right? Our attitude, if we want to be like the Magi, is one of worship, like right? no sacrifice is too big, but also no job is beneath me. There's no thing that I'd say, ah, oh, that, that's, that's beneath me. I wouldn't do that. Ultimately, I think the big lesson we learn here about giving and sacrificing and worshiping Jesus is we can't outgive Jesus. Like when the Magi came and made that sacrifice, it's an amazing picture of humility, but it is nothing compared to the humility of Christ leaving the Father's side, being conceived as an embryo, being born in a manger being placed in that mother's arm, that step down of humility is even greater. The way Paul puts that 
in a passage that's all about giving and being generous with other people. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you, by his poverty, might become rich. When they gave gold and frankincense and myrrh, those expensive gifts, that impoverished the Magi for sure. But what it did in the process was it gave honor and glory to the rightful king. There are things that you might do to worship Jesus and you're following Jesus. Many of you follow him. And there's things that you might do that impoverish you in a little bit. You lose some money. You lose some social standing. You lose a little bit of coolness or whatever you think you're sacrificing. If it's done out of worship for Christ, that is a good thing that God does not look down on. We want to close this time, close this Christmas season by singing one more song. So please stand with me. We're going to pray. Sing one last song to worship him this morning for all that he's done. Let's pray. God, we are truly amazed at what you've done. We see the example of the Magi, and we want to be like them in so many ways. We see how quick they were to serve you. We see their humility. We know that you are the king, and we know that you will rule the whole world. And it's amazing to consider your humility coming to earth, living as an infant, living as a, a baby, living as a teenager, and doing all that you did for our salvation. I'm so thankful that you love us, that you're not just some foreign king who despises his subjects, but you love us each individually, and you want us to come to a relationship with you. So I pray that students here who've kind of been on the fence about this, who don't want to submit to Jesus as Lord, I pray that they this morning would see that this is the only good option, and that they would come underneath your lordship, and they'd say, I'm ready to follow you and serve you no matter what. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.